Polyhedron is a production of Headcanon Games, LLC. Please bookmark Headcanon Games for the latest in Polyhedron news. Polyhedron is sponsored by listeners like yourself. If you'd like to become a patron of Polyhedron, please go to patreon.com polyhedron. Now, on with your show. Welcome to Polyhedron, your multifaceted podcast for everything RPG-related. I am your host, Matthew, and as always, in the studio is my good co-host, Ryan. Hey. And, sadly, our third amigo could not be here today. Khan got the best of him. Yeah, his voice is completely wrecked, so he won't be here for this episode. But someone is here to take his place. Someone of profound skill and reputation. Well, he is in studio, live, via Skype. <laughs> yeah. And Mr. Neil Raymond Price... Lead developer of Scion of Onyx Path fame. Hello, Neil. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Yeah, you're very welcome. Very. Thank you for coming on our show. We've also played just an unbelievable amount of Exalted. So, yes, just you know. a ridiculous amount. I, I actually got my... Uh, I, I cut my teeth on Exalted 2nd Edition. It was my first um, ever freelancing assignment. And that's really cool. But before we get into all of that, I'd like to let our audience know that we don't have much news to talk about today. Um, Neil is our news. He's got some very interesting things he wants to talk to us about. And from what I've heard, there's some something very cool coming down the pipeline. Uh, that's true. Um, uh, by the time this is released, you should be seeing the news about the Scion 2nd Edition Kickstarter. Which is amazing. I'll that, get my uh, wallet. Yeah. Well, I guess I'll throw money at my monitor now. Uh, just so our audience uh, is familiar, Scion was a role-playing game that was published by White Wolf several years ago. Isn't that right, Neil? Uh, that is correct. Uh, the first edition was in 2007 by White Wolf, and then in 2012, Onyx Path Publishing bought the rights to it outright, uh, and we are releasing the second edition of it, and we're made up a lot of a lot of the same people who made the first edition really good. Cool. Excellent. Fantastic. Uh, and just so our audience is up to speed, uh, Scion is a game where you play one of the children of the gods uh, of any number of pantheons from all the different cultures of the world, be it Norse mythology, Japanese mythology, African mythology, doesn't matter. You're one of their children. And in it, there are three tiers of power. There was hero, demigod, and god. In hero, you're sort of like a great person of potential. Um, you were in an urban fantasy setting. Uh, then when you went into demigod, you're dealing more with like the stories of Hercules uh, and Gilgamesh and uh, Achilles. And then when you finally ascended to godhood, you could take your place by your parents' side in the pantheon and dealt and confronted very cosmological titanic forces. And from what I've heard, second edition is going to be a, a greatly needed update and revision to that setting and system. Um, so, yes. Uh, the first edition had what I like to call an implied setting um, in that it didn't have a setting chapter and it didn't really get into what a lot of your growing legend meant. Uh, it kind of left it up to the storyteller, uh, which is called a story guide in the second edition, but we'll get to that. Um, second edition, I really wanted to make it explicit what your situation was in the world and how people reacted to you. And that sort of necessitated drilling down and explaining a bit more about how the, how the setting worked. Uh, additionally, certain elements that only came into play in later books, like um, uh, Terra Incognita, for one, um, I really wanted to drill back down into, and I really wanted to bring into the, the base setting. Um, so you're going to see stuff like that just apparent from 
uh, the get-go. Do you guys want me to tell you a bit about the setting and everything? Or Oh, oh absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Go right okay. ahead. Neil, this episode's for you to pimp out the Kickstarter as much as you want. I mean, I remember playing Scion First Edition, and while I had some issues with the mechanics, I really enjoyed the setting because you got to tell stories about people with power who had parental issues. That's yes. It. You hit on the core of it there is that uh, you are playing the children of gods, and um, you, you really are the children of gods. You're not the, the children of like super powerful beings. They are, they are divinity. And um, the base setting is called The World, with a capital W. And the core conceit of it is that in some way, almost all myths are true. Now, that doesn't mean that you concoct a story and somewhere it becomes true. It just means that everything we tell stories about, all these myths, have a kernel of truth somewhere. They, they did happen in some way, somewhere. So what you're telling me, Neil, is that over the generations, these stories got twisted and warped, but they always held a kernel of truth. Is that right? Yes, and gods often did the things that you hear about in, um, in, in, in the setting and in game and in myths. So they really did do those things. So you have, um, <clears throat> you have this world where all myths are fundamentally true, where there are kind of legendary creatures squirreled around here and there, where you have the ability to um, realize the mythic structure that your life kind of uh, takes place in and manipulate that mythic structure to your own end. Uh, if you're a scion of Hermes, you're going to be dealing with a lot of situations that your your parents were. Uh, Hermes is a bad example. Um, well, let's take a scion of Tyr, let's say, the, the god of justice in the Norse pantheon. Um, he put his hand in uh, the jaws of Fenris Wolf in order to bind Fenris Wolf, and Fenris Wolf took his hand because Tyr basically deceived him. So you're going to be kind of worried about losing your hand if you're a scion of Tyr. I'm just going to put that <laughs> yeah. out there right now. Or other extremities. Um, yeah, go. um, yeah. Just hope you're not a sign of Osiris. Well, so, yeah. well, these things do happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you pray. You, some people pay a pretty steep price for godhood. Um, they, there's a lot of people have asked me if there's um, what's what you know a masquerade, uh, to use the vampire terminology in Scion. Uh, if you know you're hidden away, if people like know that you're a sign and then. And the answer is yes, or there's no, or rather, yes, people know, no, there's no masquerade. Um, if you want to say I'm the child of a god, people will be like, oh, that's awesome. And my spreadsheet's still due tomorrow, and the boss wants it by 8 a.m., so. <laughs> that's actually very refreshing, um, because we're very used to the playing in the world of darkness, which it sounds like this is a little bit of a, an offshoot. Oh, that absolutely. Not having to hide yourself is, uh, is, a, is a bit of a, a paradigm shift as far as the uh, well, you know, White Wolf, formerly White Wolf games go. Yeah. So, the, so the thing of it is, is that we're like, oh man, you know, you have these, you have these people who are children divinities running around, you have these, uh, these gods walking the earth. You know, isn't that... Isn't that crazy? Why? How would people be able to maintain a, a real life existence? And the idea of it is that you know, <laughs> to a degree, that's a very Western monotheist way of thinking, um, because there's religions all over the planet, and we are we say mythology, but in a lot of times these are actual religions of people. People prayed yeah. to these gods, people fought for these gods, people bled and died for these gods. Um, so. You know, you're like, oh, well, you know, Hindu mythology. Blah, blah. There's a billion Hindus who still believe in that, uh, you know. And so 
um, the idea that you would you you would take you know one of the one of the Hindu gods and they would have a child walking the earth and it would not somehow affect those people is kind of ridiculous, but it doesn't necessarily change what they do in their lives. They would still react to you, but their lives are still going to go on with or without you. I, for one, am thankful that you're clarifying that for this edition. In first edition, um, you always felt like your power and your grandeur was hidden behind this veil because if you showed off, if you were too loud and proud, uh, the more the world sort of got swept up in your personal mythology, your personal narrative, and that had really untold and untoward complications on yourself. Is that true in this edition? That's still in there, but we, we kind of drill down a little bit more on what that means exactly. So because you're effectively walking around, and at uh, the first level, the hero story, this is effectively your, your first couple of origin myths. You know, for, for Hercules, this is the, the first few um, labors he did, basically. And then the last set of labors are him as a demigod. Um, so maybe his last including with um, killing, killing the, uh, the Nemean lion, for example. Right. Um, you have these narratives, and the way you actually handle these narratives in-game, the way you deal with these things, and the bigger and louder and flashier you are, determines how what we call fate uh, binds it to you. You're effectively creating these new stories in the world, but these define you going forward. If you get out of situations by lying all the time, you're eventually going to start gaining power from being a liar all the time. But it's going to be very difficult to for people to conclude that you are not, in fact, lying. And this has kind of happened to Loki. So when Loki needs to actually tell the truth, it's going to be a little hard for him. So what you're saying is there will be mechanical systems in place for, depending on how you resolve situations, it may, like the character reinforcement will be, you get much better at some things, but you might actually take penalties or stuff on, on other yes, things. At the, at the hero level, Fate's more of a cheerleader. It takes situations that it knows you'd be very good at, and it kind of puts them in front of you, and it's like, yeah, do your best. Um, if you uh, are... We have, we have certain mythic archetypes you can embody. There are 11 of them, and you get to choose three. And that determines what sort of powers you can you can take from it. So you could be, you know, a sage, a lover, and a warrior, for example. And I think pretty much all that's like the archetypal Irish god build. Um, so you know, if you're a lover, for example, fate's gonna find someone who you'd have romantic chemistry in front of, and then kind of do a meet cute, and kind of keep putting you in situations where you run into this person in a situation where it could result in a romance. So you're, what you're saying, Neil, in a very real way, it's a gamification and a method to show your GM, this is what my character is good at. Please put things in front of me to showcase how cool my character is at doing those things. Also tells the type of story you want to do. Um, is that right? Exactly. Now, um, at the hero level, there's not a lot of teeth for going against that aspect. Like, you're either like, no, I don't want to romance. It's not going to start punishing you. You're not going to start losing power. But later on, at the demigod and god level, faith starts getting some teeth and then starts getting some chains. So you need to be very careful about the things you do when you're a god. Mm -hmm. Now, gods can do things called to, to shed a lot of their power and walk around largely as mortals. And a lot of their divine, uh, their divine constraints are kind of toned down. Like, 
you know, if Zeus sheds a lot of his power and becomes immortal, he might just be, you know, a normal looking handsome guy with a little tan line where his wedding ring used to be. Uh, he's not going to necessarily be going after every beautiful woman uh, who walks by him. Um, but yeah, at the hero level, it's more just, hey, this is here if you want it, and it's going to keep putting it in front of you. Are, are all three levels going to be in one in one book this this go around, or is it going to be spread out over three separate books? No, actually, it's spread out over four separate books. So the oh the first two books are coming. I know the first two books are coming up uh, for Kickstarter. One is a slimmed down version of the core rules that presents also the core setting, like again called the world, and the um, some of the essential things you need to know and need to be able to use. Like we have something in there called the plot engine. Um, that um, allows you to uh, drill down mythic plot structures, especially of an origin story, and then kind of work those tropes into your game. Sort of an instruction guide. Basically, it's if your guy is doing this, you should do that. If you run into two brothers, you should run into a third brother later, that sort of thing. Right, oh, um, right. okay. There always is a third Summer's brother. That's the thing, is that there's always, the, in mythology, there's always a third brother. Mm. Um, and so a lot of mythic tropes kind of uh, go around those, like I said, those, those types of stories. And I brought on some, a couple of myth experts to write those sections, and I think they did a spectacular job. They did a lot of, um, they broke down a lot of how Western myth works. They broke down how, a lot of how Eastern, especially Japanese myth works. And uh, I believe they got into um, Igbo myth in africa there's this really nice um myth of kingship of actually like what what being what 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 being a king should be like and how those stories play out in games i always like the idea similar to exalted and we can talk about that in a little while is that you can be big and bad you can be the most capable sorcerer the most capable warrior you can be do all these great things but if you take over a country or you have rulership and authority over people well, guess what? You've got to run a country. You've got to do the things that a king or a ruler has to do, and you have to deal with all the consequences of that. And it becomes all a part of your story, your mythology. Um, to be a good king or god king uh, is a part of what your purview as the potential god is going to be. I know yeah. Nami's had an avatar called the True King that would, you know, if you, it was your subjects were part of, you know, the mechanics that drove you. All right, let's change gears. Uh, let's refocus back on the Kickstarter. Neil, you've already explained a little bit about it, but what are some of the highlights? What are some of the uh, things that you want to reach and accomplish uh, other than, you know, funding it? I don't know if that'll be a problem. <laughs> nah, probably won't. <laughs> uh, never, I mean, never say never. You, you, you never know until you, until it's the end of the Kickstarter. Um, and I'm, right I'm, that, trying, I'm trying very hard not to get my hopes up and not to not to get too hype about this. I've been working myself and my team have been working very hard on this over the last three years and we're all really excited about it. Uh, I, but, I, I'm excited for it. I think it's going to be fantastic. Yeah. Several people who have already done Kickstarters sometimes fail because it could be either timing or implementation. Yeah. And it, it could be, could be any one of a number of things. Uh, some people are still recovering from Gen Con um, you know, there's other Kickstarters going on at the same time right now. Uh, so the primary goal of the Kickstarter that we're going to be funding is to fund for two books, uh, Scion Origins, which, as I said, is the core book in the core systems, and Scion Hero, which lets you play these mythic children of God characters. 
you're pledging for these two core books. Um, going forward in stretch goals, some of the things I'd really want to do is I really want to get more pantheons in the game. We have 10 pantheons already. Uh, all of the returning ones from the first edition, except the Loa are the Orisha now. We decided to go with a slightly different interpretation of them okay. that was closer to the African Yoruban faith. Um, cool. But actually, one of the stretch goals I want to do is an expansion of the Orisha to cover the Loa of first edition and how they were. Um, the other two are the last pantheons of, um, of first edition. Um, so one of our core pantheons is the Manitou, which are the Algonquian North American gods. Um, they're, they are Native Americans. We have uh, a Native author actually writing them. He's extremely good. Um, I, was, I was very excited that he decided to come on board. Um, and he's done a phenomenal job with them, I think. And that's something I want to comment on. I want to commend you for sort of the super multiculturalism that looks like will be in the book. Um, I always love the idea that you get all these different myths from all over the world, and that means people from all over the world can play these myths. Um, that means if you're in Japan, you can deal with Japanese mythology. If you're in Africa, you can deal with African mythology. It's just really cool and progressive, and I love it. Yeah, we had. I actually had. We actually had a bit of a theological fight between um, some of the Japanese authors about whether something is a kami or has a kami, and it's animism is hard. Well, you, you, yeah, you do. Yeah, animism is hard, and it's not an easily translated concept. Um, but I did strive wherever possible to either find, if not someone who grew up in that culture and was very familiar with it, at least someone who had studied it extensively. Um, and I, the only one I didn't really do that for was the ancient Egyptian um, pantheon because there are no more ancient Egyptians around. Uh, modern Egyptians are are you know not not at all like the ancient Egyptians. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, even then, we found an expert in um, the ancient Egyptian religion, and um, she really informed a lot of our writers' process going into that and discussing how to conflate some of the gods and which mergers would be appropriate. Because we're looking at a religion that existed over thousands and thousands of years, and gods tended to merge and then split apart into different forms. And so when you're talking about accuracy, you're really talking about a point in time. And a point in time is very limited in the, the entire span of the religion's existence. Right. I, did a, I had to do a project on it once for school, and I tried to do a flowchart of who, who, who was related to whom. That was very educational. <laughs> yeah, we have flowcharts of those for all ten of our pantheons, man, and it gets pretty crazy a lot of the time. So, Neil, let's dive into it. What are some of the stretch goals you want to see out of this Kickstarter? What are some of the things that you know will be worth people's money? Well, we, we really want to get, um, besides the, the, the more pantheons we're coming in with, um, one of the stretch goals I'm really excited about is cults, um, actually forming a hero cult about yourself. It's implied a lot that, you, that people do this a lot in settings. Scions especially do this in setting. And to talk about the setting a little bit more, um, you have scions who interact with people and who use social media and who actually you know, promote themselves. Of course and, they do. Yeah, and it's, it's difficult because they, they kind of have a flavor of the week uh, type, type of attribute to them, but they still do it and they still interact. And a lot of scions are very, very popular. Um, so uh, cults are the ability to actually like, form a group around yourself who 
you know, for whatever reason, give you worship. And they usually belong, at least nominally, to your religion. Um, but we do want to handle cults that are basically groupies um, and maybe, you know, may still go to church on Sunday, um, even though they're coming out to talk to the children of another god. Um, so that's definitely something I want to cover, and I want to have a lot of stuff going in about. And so that would be a stretch goal? Oh, yeah, that's, that's definitely a stretch goal. We did cool. not have room for it in the main book. But it is absolutely something I want to cover. Another thing I really want to cover is a reliquary book. Um, so relics are things that allow you to channel divine power. They're gifts from your parents. They're items of legend, um, like you know, like the sword tear thing, or uh, the cauldron of the Dagda that can resurrect the dead or feed an entire army at once. So an example of this that I think people would probably know is Mjolnir, uh, Thor's hammer. Yeah. Yeah, Mjolnir would definitely be a very, very, very powerful relic. Yeah. Actually, the signature hero character is a scion of Thor, mm-hmm. and he has a uh, gun called Giant's Bane, and um, yeah. it's, a, it's a massive revolver. And the hammer of the revolver is actually a tiny fragment of Mjolnir. And that, and that itself is, is a relic. Yeah. Um, it is a lesser-powered version of Mjolnir, but it's still, it's still taking a bit of that legend. So we really want a, a big separate section to drill down on you know, what this does and how to use it and definitely how to build your own. Because the section uh, in the book is a little, I, I don't want to say, you know, truncated, but we had to have room for other stuff. Yeah, correct. You got so many pages and you have to make sure you cover everything. So you, space is a premium. Yeah. And it also occurred to me that making the section, um, building your own relic is, uh, it's, it's not a deeply involved process, but there are some intricate moving parts to it, and not everyone wants to do that. Sometimes they want to be like, well, can I just have a sword? Oh, okay, I want, a, I want an awesome sword that does this. And it's like, okay. So we kind of give you a couple of examples in the core book, but then to actually build your own, we wanted a bigger system that if you yeah, players you, you have died game right balance. In. And you actually have to consider game balance. I mean, you can't, for like two points, make the one ring or something. Yeah, I think one of the characters in the playtest uh, made uh, Captain America's shield, actually. And it's basically impervious to uh, people of a lower tier than you. So if you're at a hero level, um, mortals can't really do any damage to you. But uh, if a giant hits you, you're going to go flying. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so we thought that was we thought that was like a like you, that that's the sort of thing you can kind of put into the game like that. That's really cool. I'm always happy to hear when a game system grows in not just complexity but in like robustness, the ability to handle elegantly a lot of different variables and uh possibilities for the player i was definitely very excited when i heard about the story path system which both scion and the trinity continuum games are both going to use the same system i'm looking forward to seeing that more cinematic feel in these older games yeah i think it's going to be something that people are really going to enjoy i think that the scale system we built in there is going to be very robust and it's going to solve a lot of difficult issues uh, to kind of summarize it for your listeners, basically, um, you have a scale that ranges from one to six, and uh, one being kind of mortal and six being very godlike. And stuff kind of happens that ranges on that scale, um, but certain effects will just boost your, your power and scale. And we distinguish between um, essential targets and trivial targets slash environmental targets. So two different types. Um Essential targets, 
uh, are your named characters, your whatever, and that does, that basically adds a number of successes to your whatever action you're doing against them. But against non-essential targets, it either just simply has a special effect that you get to just narrate, or if you really want to drill down there, it actually multiplies your successes. Okay. So this is how Scions will like pick up an aircraft carrier, you know, at the demigod level. Um, it, it's it's essentially an environmental target, so they just simply pick it up. But yeah. it also means when they hit someone, they don't essentially turn them into a fine red paste, but they might knock them across a, a football field. You're right. It's more like uh, things that are less essential to your narrative and to the game's story are going to be easier for you to deal with, whereas things that are more important to the narrative, more important to the story, you're going to be more on an even keel with yourself. And that, in turn, makes these fights more interesting and potentially challenging. One of the whole points of all of this, of course, is to put your occasionally put your heroes in a situation where they do just get to clean up and like yeah. just throw some dudes around. Because what's the point of like having progression if you can't like you know sink feel powerful? Feel powerful. So I think it's really yeah. good that you guys are just including that you know right there in the system. And, and the reverse is also true because the system in a balanced way, you can put your characters up against a greater challenge that will require smart thinking and teamwork to overcome yeah absolutely um teamwork is another big thing we're putting there we have a lot of really good robust teamwork systems and actually um <laughs> one of the difficulties we were having in the play test and i don't know i don't know if, oh, if it's a difficulty but I'm, i've been reading feedback from a lot of play testers and we set the defenses for one of the antagonists too high and someone was like yeah we had to work as a team to just totally take this guy down and we had to like chain these effects together and I was like, man, I did not intend them to be that tough, but I'm really happy that you guys kind of kenned on to a good teamwork effect to actually take them down. Oh, and they were like, yeah, it was, oh, it was yeah. awesome. Oh, that's the classic axiom of players. Oh, you don't think we can do it? Oh, we're going to do it. Uh, yeah, we have, uh, we have a, a, an initiative system, and we have a lot of teamwork effects in there that I think really help to drill down the, the team mechanic. Um, but we actually also have... A, um, a kind of personalized narrative uh, narrative system that allows you to go off as on your own as characters and do things outside of the main story. Because if you look at like mythology and the source material we have, uh, scions are often off doing their own thing. They're not always palling around together. Right. They, they join up together. Group. Yeah, they join up together to do stuff and to do really cool things, but they're not always with each other. So you have these blocks of downtime between your adventures. Um, to use an example, um, Hercules was one of the Argonauts. And the Argonauts, of course, uh, were on the ship Argo to go after the Golden Fleece. And so that's kind of our big model for Scion adventures. A lot of times you're going after the Golden Fleece, and these are when your Scions are all together. But we also give you the ability to play when you're not going after the Golden Fleece. Um, Hercules has his own little band of people around him who help him in his adventures to uh, you know defeat the Hydra, he had Aeolus right. to help him out. So um, we give you the ability to do that and to kind of play in game. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You have the group story, but each person is a is a potential god. They have their own mythology to them, and so they're going to have to go on their own journey in order to really like cultivate who they are as an individual rather than just a group. Yep. Uh, we try very hard to design for the wallflower, and we try very hard to uh, make sure that every player gets the spotlight as well. 
and that people are able to do stuff on downtime even if they're not able to make it to the game. There's a question that I'd like to ask concerning the setting. I think it will be very interesting to talk about. Sure. So in first edition, uh, you played one of the children of the gods. Uh, father or mother, doesn't matter. In second edition, is that still true, or can you be something else? Nope. Uh, you can be something else. Um, so here's, here's how it works. Um, a lot of times, if you... If, all right. Well, let me... Let me let me clarify exactly what I mean. There are four types of scions. Okay. Your character can be just about anything. Um, we give you the ability to play uh, normal humans in Origins, and also you can play a legendary creature. If you want to be a satyr, you can play satyr. If you want to be a kitsune, you can play a kitsune. If you want to be some sort of descendant of an oni, you can do that. Oh, no, if you want to, we give you super happy about that. <laughs> yeah, you can you can do that. And actually. Um, uh, you know, the children of certain gods are actually able to take powers from some of those, uh, some of those um, power lists that they nor normally wouldn't be able to. Yep. Um, for example, uh, if you're a scion of Inari, you can take some Kitsune Nax, even though you are not a Kitsune. Uh, but if you want to be a Kitsune and a scion of Inari, that's fine, because there are four types of scions. The first type is the traditional uh, sperm and egg. Um, this, you know, you, you know you're, one of your parents is a god, and the other one of your parents is a mortal. And, you know, they got together, they had you. Um, the, another type is called the Chosen, and that is there are certain kind of divine bloodlines. Maybe it was a scion who didn't get visited. That's when they're activated by their parents, and right. they grow into their power. And before that, they only have, like, a little tiny fragment of it. So there could be potentially thousands of, of unvisited scions walking around the world. Um, uh, maybe you're descended from one of them, or maybe you are descended from, you know, an ancient, powerful high, high priest of one of the gods. Uh, maybe you're, you have royalty in your veins. Or, you know, maybe there's just something about your bloodline. And then you do something that is kind of mythically resonant to uh, the, the gods. So right. the, uh, our, one of our, our examples for this is in Greek mythology, you had uh, Camilla. And she was, um, she, she was uh, the, the daughter of a king. And he was walking with her in the woods as a baby, um, and he was beset upon by uh, enemies. And so he ran to a stream, and he basically tied her to a spear and asked um, the goddess Artemis to defend her. And then he threw his daughter on the spear over a riverbank. And when she landed on the other riverbank, basically saying, you know, I'm committing her to your, to your care, an animal came by and chewed through the ropes and then grabbed the baby by the scruff of the neck and then took her off into the woods. And she was basically raised by wolves. Um, and so that's a perfectly viable option. You weren't technically the, you know, the, the son or daughter of a god, but they're spending a lot of time and putting a lot of divine energy into you. Wait. And so you're chosen by them. That's, that's um, rad. Yeah, it's not something you can do with everyone, but it's something you can do with a lot of them. The third type is being directly created by a god. And you have, uh, in Sumerian mythology, you have Enkidu. Um, yes. And Enkidu was created to be kind of the, the, the counterpart to Gilgamesh. Uh, and at first an enemy, and later they became best friends. Um, but in a lot of mythologies, you have the gods creating man by making clay and then breathing life into it. And it's like, you know, why is that a one-time only thing? They can, they can probably just, they can just do it again. Um, so in a lot, in some created by a god, and just they breathe life into you. And I don't see why that, you shouldn't be a scion. The fourth type is kind of weird. And it's not going to be in the core books, but it's going to be in a later book. 
and it's called an incarnation. And what happens is gods are big, gods are vast, and um, they are both people and they are also elemental concepts within the world. Uh, and because of this, they can actually spin off little fragments of themselves to walk the earth while they are somewhere else. Like Odin can be in his fest hall in, you know, in Valhalla, um, but at the same time, he's a dude in a nice suit and an eye patch in the middle of America, and he's also a wanderer on the roads in Norway. Right. He's, he's all these three things at once, even as, you know, he's walking the battlefields of the dead and oh, claiming cool. souls. So very much so the American he's, God's way of looking at it. Yes, he's, he's all these things at once, and he can do that because he's a god. And eventually when you're a god, you can do that too, by the way. So, something for all you players to look forward to out there. Yes, so uh, to be the scion of that, though, to be an incarnation, um, gods can die. Gods can be killed. And what the overarching identity of these gods is, is called a mantle. And so the figure who's sitting in Valhalla is essentially wearing the mantle of Odin that you have built up over being a hero, over being a demigod. And when you die and become a god, um, you're wearing that mantle. And if you die, if you were killed as a god, that mantle still exists and people, other people can claim it if need be. But if you have any active incarnations in the world, um, they become a scion in and of themselves. They just they default back down to hero level. So a cosmological safety mechanism. Sort of, yeah. Um, and some gods actually deliberately uh, will spin off an incarnation and then kill themselves because doing so um, resets a lot of the fate bindings. Like I said, it, some of their chains, some are um, some some of the fate bindings have have teeth. And so, in a way, it's like cleaning the slate. It's I don't like what I am. I'm going to be something else now. And the new incarnation of them has a lot of the same beliefs and has a lot of the same feelings, and they both are and are not the same person. Like, look at you, and then look at the 16-year-old you. Like, yeah, exactly. you know, you're, you're the same person, but you're definitely not the same person. I don't you know like what I mean? that guy very much. Yeah, I want to slap the crap out of him. Well, you, you know, <laughs> and that's, perfect, that's a perfectly fine response. <laughs> so you can, you can kind of build yourself back up, and you can reclaim the mantle. And it's implied that a lot of gods have actually done this over the course of, you know, the existence of Scion. I find it very fascinating. That's one way to explain in setting how gods changed over time. I'm going to uh, spoil the end of Sandman, the comics, so if any of your listeners uh, are big Sandman fans, you might want to skip ahead for about a minute or so. That's fine. Um, sure. At the end of Sandman, did you guys read it? Yes, uh, I have. I have read yeah. three quarters of it, and I don't care about spoilers that much. So, yeah, so at the end of Sandman, um, Dream dies, except Dream doesn't die, Morpheus dies. Yes. And Morpheus and Dream are kind of like synonyms, but and then Daniel becomes Dream. Right. Morpheus is his current incarnation, and Daniel is his next incarnation. Yes, and I think that's a very good way of explaining how it works. Yeah. Because, you know, Daniel says stuff like, I remember, I have all of my memories, I remember being there, I remember all of my siblings, but tomorrow I'm going to meet them all for the first time. And that's sort of how being a god is and how adopting the new mantle of a god is. It, is it, you, you have this big aspect of their identity, but you're not truly the same person. So now instead of having some of my money, you have like all my money? This sounds fascinating. This sounds so much better than first edition. I mean, I liked first edition, 
but this really sounds like a lot of love has gone into it. I hear a lot of notes and I hear a lot of beats from a lot of other, you know, a lot of other properties and other games that I that I personally love. Like yeah. the idea of fate, like binding itself to you, is very much. Um, uh, some of the more Eastern RPGs do a lot of that stuff. If you're in, into like Wuja and stuff like that, yeah. And, and you know, well, I just I just eat up gods and goddesses, and I just I yeah, just eat it, up mythology. Well, yeah, mythology is great. Uh, I mean. As a gamer and a nerd, a lot of people cut their teeth uh, when they're growing up on reading Norse mythology and Greek mythology and, and Japanese mythology and all the other sort of religions in the world. And that gets them sort of interested in sort of the in mythos. And when then they find gaming and that sort of becomes an outlet for them. Yep. Um, I think the two biggest influences on this edition are uh, American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Oh, uh, game absolutely. And, I'm sorry, yes. And um, uh, a comic book called, by Kieran Gillen called The Wicked Plus the Divine. I um, which read is a, it, but I think I've heard of it. It's utterly fantastic. I definitely love Kieran Gillen. I definitely love his work. and I, He has been a, such a tremendous inspiration on this edition of Scion going to it. And he was really um, the big thing about why we have no masquerade, because they don't have a masquerade in The Wicked Plus the Divine. And the idea is that every 90 years, gods are reincarnated, and they live for two years, and then they die. Oh, interesting. And so it's, what do they, what do, they do in those two years? Um, that's so fascinating to me. And um, I was talking to one of my co-developers, Rose Bailey, uh, who is the Vampire the Requiem developer, and I asked her, I was like, hey, um, you know, should we have a Masquerade in Scion? I don't know what to do. And she's like, well, they do just fine in The Wicked Plus the Divine. And I'm like, you know what? They really do. So that was my my big push to not have it in Scion, and it was the that's right choice all the way. The most, that's an interesting sort of twist from first edition to second edition, because due to my limited exposure of first edition, uh, where everything was sort of veiled and you had a sort of a masquerade, where in aberrant you have sort of the celebrity culture uh, driven around. Uh, cosmologically powerful entities. I'm still trying to wrap my brain around this. Yeah, people are always like, "Well, what if my scion takes over a country?" And I'm like, "Go ahead, do it. Yeah, you can totally, you can totally do it if you want to." But now you got to run a country. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that happened to me in Exalted once. It, it yeah, no, go well. No, no. Yeah, um, and you know, I don't want to say being a goddess don't crack up to be, but we have mechanisms in play in case you the players, and you, the characters, do not want to ascend higher. You can stay at hero level indefinitely. You can stay a demigod indefinitely um, and just not not ascend to divinity for whatever reason. So that um, be because a process. Somewhat. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's somewhat willing in some cases. If you are just a really, really famous demigod, um, like Maui in Polynesian uh, mythology, yeah, um, Maui gets killed trying to make everyone in the world immortal. Um, uh, and, and I'm sure anyone with Wikipedia can read how he did it. I'm not going to repeat it on this podcast. Right. Um, but he gets killed doing that. But he's done so much that I don't think divinity for him is really just going to be yeah, some, out of the question. Yeah, like some characters aren't really geared to being a god. Uh, their stories work better if they are lesser in power, um, like Hercules or Maui. So. Yeah, but but both Maui and Hercules are are gods in the setting. They yes. they they made the jump, but like Kukulain did not make the jump. He he was a demigod. So 
I know you mentioned that you you touched a little bit on the king and the African mythos, but like Africa, as we I'm sure you know, like has like an an insane amount of mythology. Like, uh, yeah, that's why that's why I said Igbo specifically. Um, it's it's massive, um, and we're focusing a lot on Yoruban mythology specifically, but also what my one writer calls the Afro Atlantic diaspora, um, because I've actually um, heard of that before. Yeah, so the so there was this um, thing called slavery, and it was really really awful, and yep. it happened for h- hundreds of years, and it shattered a lot of cultures and a lot of faiths. Yeah, and so remember what I said about you kind of being bound your god, the gods kind of being bound by stories and who they are. Yep. Well, th- I mean, those can change over time, and it can co- potentially change you in ways that you may not like. And so the gods of um, the Yoruban people um, decided to look at. Um, decided to look at their people being basically enslaved and taken, not basically, directly enslaved and taken across the ocean. And they kind of looked at each other and were like, well, we can stay here in Africa where we know where we are, who we are and what we are, or we can stay with our people. And they chose to stay with their people and it has warped them in some very strange ways. Um, and so to a lot of the other gods, uh, the, the Orisha are, are odd and a lot of odd in their ways of thinking. Like, uh, the chief enemies of the gods are the Titans, which are, which are rogue deities who are kind of consumed with the elements of the world that they, they embody. Right. Like, Prometheus is fire. He's not, he's not a god of fire. He, you know, he's a titan of fire. He, he is fire in a way that Igni isn't, um, for example. Uh, but the, the Orisha don't really believe in Titans because they met the worst monsters... Uh, they can imagine, and then those monsters were all human. <laughs> yeah, well, that'll do uh, it. Interesting. Yeah, and so um, they and they also have the offshoot of the Loa, and they have two very different expressions of who they are when they're one when one's Orisha and one's Loa. Um, so a lot of the other gods are like what well, even gods who have different expressions, like the Greek gods, they have the their Greek expressions and their Roman expressions. Even they look at it and like, well, what the hell, dudes? This is weird. Yeah. Um, but that's the sort of thing that we we like to like address head on in Scion. It's a level of fictionality that I think makes for very interesting stories and very interesting tales for you to tell at your table. Yeah, that's like next level storytelling. And that's, by God, you'll learn some. Yeah, yeah, you'll learn about things you're not used to, like history and other cultures, uh, other mythologies. Obviously, you'll be able to experience things that you don't normally do. And that's important because uh, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast at all, but me, Scott, and Ryan all expunged the idea that you should use role playing to expand yourself and make yourself a, a, a more whole individual. It's something very important. We have a um, there is a discussion on the uh, on on some forums about um, playing someone of a different culture who you're not actually if you're not actually part of that culture. And uh, things can get very problematic very quickly. Right, as forum conversations tend to do. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, even just the topic in general, things can get very problematic very quickly. But we, we talk about that in the storytelling section. We have a very long essay on that topic, in fact, and how to do it right. That, that is and for so each good of the, to hear. 
that is for each of here. I'd actually want to read the book just for that. Because, because we knew, like, the moment you just, you said that the African deities were going to be a part of it and the Eastern deities were going to be a part of it, the, 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 the word appropriation just, a, like, blew through my brain in, like, the biggest, brightest letters they could. And as, as it should. That you guys aren't going to make a mistake with it, but I just, like, how are they going to handle this and how are they going to teach people how to handle this? The first thing that we the first thing we we approach this with is that the the Odin in um, Scion is not the Odin of real life. These are real gods. These are real beings that people worship and pay homage to, and and acknowledge. And religion is their culture, and their culture is their religion, and they're inseparable. And so, in some ways, it is an act of appropriation. But that's why we apply a layer of fictionality to it. That's why we say this is not the real Odin. We're not talking about him. You know, we're not talking about the real Shiva, the real Igni. We're talking about fictionalized versions of them. But because of that, we try to still be as accurate and as respectful as possible. And we have lists of resources in the book to actually say this is this is the sort of thing you should read if you want to learn more about the actual culture, if you want to learn more about the real thing beyond just a Wikipedia entry. We have these essays on playing things respectfully. We have these essays on playing things. And um, to me, it's, it's the difference between representation and appropriation. We are trying to represent these cultures. We're trying to bring them into the spotlight and shine a light on them and um, not try to exclude or try to squish together too many things to wipe out the differences between them. One my one of my authors actually actually came to me and he was actually kind of teary eyed because he got really teary eyed telling me this and he's like you know I played first edition I played a lot but every time I looked at that book I didn't see someone who looked like me and I had to make up a character in a pantheon just to play someone who looked like me and I don't have to do that anymore oh, and cool. if I could I I don't I want everyone to be able to look at this game and to find someone who looks like them and someone who talks like their their ancestors did or talks like their culture does and be able to play that in the game. And I want other people to be able to learn about those two and respect and appreciate them. And um, <clears throat> in, a, in, in a very big way, I said before, religion is culture. And the reason people tell myths about gods is not so they understand why there's lightning in the sky. People didn't make up myths to understand how the world works. People made up myths to explain and express how the worlds work, how their cultures worked. Not the environment, but how their world and their people were. That's why when you look at you know, the, the Polynesian myths, you see Maui doing all these great and bold and adventurous things. Because to get in a canoe and cross the Pacific Ocean is pretty crazy. Yes, yes it is. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's, it's bold and it's daring and it's, it's such an exploratory spirit that's incredible and that gets embodied in their gods. And then you look at, you look at the Roman gods, these gods of excellence and martial, martial virtue and justice. And they're like, these are, the, these are the things we love most about ourselves and hate the most about ourselves and they are in our gods. You're correct. It's a way of showing a perspective of a culture. Exactly. And so... That's really the angle we're looking at it from. And you see that in so many other gods and so many other things. And I was actually telling a, a friend of mine, um, one of our Aztec gods is uh, Xochipilli, the, um, the flower prince. And he's um, a god of dance and a god of beauty and a god of art. 
and also of male prostitutes and gay people. And he's he's one of our headliners in the book. He's in there as someone you can be a scion of. And another one of my friends got really teary-eyed and was like, thank you so much for putting this in here. But, you know, we're not I'm not trying to whitewash anything and I'm not trying to pander to anyone. These are these are real gods of real cultures. This is what they considered important. And they considered it important enough to worship it. Wow, that's really a, a powerful story. Um, I don't particularly want to end on a too somber of a note, so I've got a question specifically for you before we wrap everything up. Um, sure. So my question is, you were a freelancer for a really long time. How did it feel when you were given the reins uh, as lead developer on such a big title like Scion for Onyx Path? So um, how that happened is that the lead developer... Uh, who was on it before, who was shepherding it through a lot of work. Um, I was sort of his right-hand man for a very long time. And he got offered a couple other opportunities, and for various reasons he had to step down. And um, he copied me on an email to the to the boss of the company. He said, you know, I don't think I can, I can keep doing this anymore, but I definitely think Neil can. And honestly, I still had that email starred and sitting in my inbox. It was just such a huge boat of confidence in me for everything I've been doing for years. I'd, I'd um, print it was, out. Yeah, I'd, frame <laughs> it. I'd, I'd frame be it. framed. Yeah, it was such a nice thing for him to say. And um, when when I see developers who I have loved and respected say things like, I'm really excited for, well, I, I can even say this out, you know, on here. Um, Matt McFarland in an RPG thread about Scion Second Edition uh, said that he didn't get into Scion First Edition for a lot of reasons, but He's really excited to see what I'm doing with it, um, mostly because, and not just because he's known me for a while, but because of everything I've said and everything I've talked about. And, um, you know, Matt McFarland actually got me into gaming because I didn't know what role-playing games were until I found a copy of Wraith the Oblivion, and I read all of his essays online about how to run Wraith, and I was like, this role-playing thing's really cool. <laughs> and so, so for... So many people who I have read and admired to be like, I'm so excited for Scion. It's really humbling. Um, and to have so many fans come up to me like, oh, Scion was my favorite game of all time. And just tell me about their characters. You know, usually I get really annoyed when people tell me about their characters, but I never get tired about hearing about Scion. I really, really <laughs> don't. That's awesome. Because well, people love it so amazing, much. Man. As a reminder to everyone then, uh, since we're wrapping up here, uh, the Kickstarter, if you're hearing this, is probably live. Uh, if you're super from the future, uh, hello future people. Uh, the Kickstarter hopefully was fully funded with all the support from the people who listen to this podcast. Um, Neil, um, before we get out of here, uh, how what is the best way for people to reach you electronically? My Twitter handle is at burntneal, B-U-R-N-T-N-E-A-L-L. -L. It's uh, after the saga of Burnt Y'all. In, uh, in in Norse mythology, actually. Um, um, that's the, probably the best way to get hold of me. If you want to tweet at me, I'll answer back. Excellent. Awesome. And, and as always, I am at BioImportance. And I'm at Arduous, R-J-U-O-U-S. If you have feedback for the show or you'd like to give us something to talk about, you can email us at polyhedronpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, also, if you want to show us some support and you don't have a lot of money to do it, head over to iTunes, give us a five-star review. That always helps give us more listeners. Uh, and if you are a person who would like to give us money, you can head over to patreon.com slash polyhedron and give as much or as little as you'd like. Um, and since Neil is our guest, we're going to have him send us out. 
Hey, uh, thank you guys so much for inviting me on here. Thank you so much for letting me talk about this thing I've loved and have been doing for the last couple of years. It was our pleasure. You are quite welcome, Neil. And from everyone here at Polyhedron, go geek out. Go roll some dice.